Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. Like other cities around the country and the world, Seattle has been through a ringer during the COVID pandemic. Issues already troubling the city, economic growth, public safety, affordable housing, and political infighting, were exacerbated. In this extra episode of Speakers Forum, on his 100th day in office, Mayor Bruce Harrell explains at length the who, what, why, when, and how of his plans for leading Seattle. Harrell speaks of the, quote, mess he inherited. He then shares his vision for, quote, one Seattle, police reform, improved city council relations, downtown revitalization, and crime and homelessness reduction, among other subjects. If you haven't had a chance to get to know Mayor Harrell yet, this conversation covers many of the issues he's concerned about and his very personal take on the art and science of government. Seattle University's Institute of Public Service presented this event from Piggott Auditorium on April 11th as part of their Conversations series. Mayor Harrell was interviewed by multimedia journalist Joni Balter, SU professor Larry Hubble, and students Mandela Gardner and Camille Rochester. The theme of the event was the question, where do we go from here? Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Uh, Let's dive into the questions. As you've heard and probably noticed yourself, you've been in office 100 days today. Um, What, if anything, is different in the city as a result of that? Thank you. I'm doing very well, by the way. Usually you start off, how are you? Something like that. A little little, little warmth here. We had some warmth in the back. And all of my views have been fully endorsed by Seattle University, by the way. So let's overrule that disclaimer. And I do want to say, and I'll answer your question directly, that um, thank you for being here. You've honored me by just thinking I may have uh, something to say of some level of profundity, so thank you for being here. It's easy easy to talk. It's actually often harder to listen. And I want to recognize we have some uh, current and former uh, elected officials here. I won't call you out by name, but uh, thank you for being here. So to answer your... Thank you. To answer your question, I would say uh, in 100 days, three things have, have occurred. One is not really cool and sexy and exciting. Uh, it's doing an internal evaluation of the systems or the lack of systems that the city has. For, for example, um, just how, how to deal with some of this unfortunate living in a tent uh, that's obstructing a sidewalk that's in a, uh, in a park and we don't have housing for them. Just to be able to look at how the city handles that. Do you just remove them? Do you find them uh, services? Do you do an analysis on what their particular predicament is? They, they, they may look alike, but they are not alike. And so the individualized case management approach that you would think that uh, I could, as mayor, first day I could just call someone and say, hey, I'd like to help this person. The systems were not there. So we had to build them. And we had to take six departments. And quite frankly, <clears throat> with 12,000 employees, I look for superstars. I look for leaders and formal leaders. I look for social activists. I look for people that lead with compassion. And I had to identify that kind of talent to create what we call a unified care team. 
And one thing you have heard, some people would say, well, he's pretty aggressive on cleaning up the streets. You haven't heard anyone uh, get arrested who shouldn't have been arrested. You haven't heard uh, anyone really say, well, they, were, they had a racialized approach or a milita- militarized approach. So the first piece is systems building. The second piece is, I had to find a lot of leaders in the city, department heads and formal leaders, and look going on a talent search. Uh, again, I know people want quick change. You know, being an incrementalist is not the, 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 the strategy these days. But if things to be changed quickly, they could also be broken quickly. And I owe you more than that. I owe you sustainable change. And so uh, looking for the right people, that's sort of a catchy tune, by the way. <laughs> I'm just trying to get attention. Yes, it is. Um, There's a lot of that going that on. That was a soft one. I like that one. <laughs> I guess the other piece I would say is um, uh, changing the narrative in the city. I love the city. It's easy to take a brick and throw it towards someone out of anger, but I'm trying to change the conversation when it comes to race and social justice, when it comes to police reform, business revitalization. I want good jobs here. I don't just bash businesses. I want to hold them accountable. So I think that I've made it, I'm trying to make it cool to say I love Seattle. You know, I was born just uh, about eight blocks from here. And the city's been very, very good to, to me. And, and I know I'm going over on time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close by saying that my wife is somewhere around here. Where's my wife? My wife is right here. <clears throat> Here's a fun fact. Here's a fun fact. When I, I met her when I was about 18 years old, on Seattle U's campus. Aw, nice local angle. Yeah, and we were at a, a party at Cambian Towers, and, um, and that was when we first laid eyes on one another. We were both Huskies at the time, but we were, they had the better parties here. They so. had the better parties, that's true. And, um, but what I've tried to make it very clear is we have our challenges. I told President Biden this, I told Vice uh, President Harris this. I believe the answers in this country are fine right here in Seattle. I believe we have that capability. I talked to several mayors today and supporting uh, former Mayor Garcetti on his uh, appointment into the Biden White House today. And I'm talking to a lot of the other mayors of other cities. I believe Seattle has that kind of potential to really be be a leader on all these important issues. It does seem um, to many people that you have set a different tone, particularly on public safety and homelessness. But as you know, sort of attitude is one thing. And if you read that poll that everybody's talking about, people want action. So what changes have already occurred and are in the offing on those issues? Well, you do see that when I talk about public safety, when I talk about I need more officers, I always lead with, but not in a racialized or militarized fashion. And here at Seattle University, you all are going to actually help me build build a third department where this third department will not uh, be a gun and badge department, but are going to be people well-versed in de-escalation and cultural competency, and they'll protect the, the, the very communities that they come from. So I tell you I need more officers, though, but a new kind of officer, the right kind of officers, the right kind of sensitivity. So that's a new conversation because I know that, I know what the defund movement was all about. I listen, I research, and I know what we've seen in this city and in other cities, why people will get 
caught up in that narrative, but I must tell you that I believe that all communities have to be safe first. The police are not the answer. That's just not the answer. You know, they say, Harold loves cops. No, I love safety. I want my grandchildren to be safe. I want your elder, I want you to be safe. Our country has a big problem with unreasonable gun policies that I had a, 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 a group visit here from, from Scotland. Today I had a group visit here from France, Nantes, not France. And I talked to them about their history with guns. And so when I hear about gun violence, my heart drops because I'm the mayor of one of the most important cities in this country. And I will do everything possible to eradicate that. But to answer your question directly, uh, I'm not afraid to say that I, I need more great officers, public safety officers. I want to change the conversation when it comes to policing. And I think our new generation are going to help lead the way because some of the answers come from them as well. Uh, Mayor, you said recently that with regards to crime, you, quote, inherited a mess. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, that term mess is a term I, I heard in law school. It's a very <clears throat> term that's uh, been used throughout the decades. The first thing I inherited was a council and a mayoral office that did not like each other. And systems in the departments, I have about 32 departments, whether it's the transportation department or the utility departments or the IT department, the Seattle Police Department, that they have fiefdoms. Literally, I think our first week on the job, that there was some work done by one department and said, well, we stop here and we're not going to do this body of work because that goes to another department. That, that's not my one Seattle concept, that uh, often people of the 12,000 employees, they will outlive and outwork politicians. They are being led by politicians. And they don't know if I'm going to be around four years, five years, or two years for that matter. So they are seasoned vets and employees, and they, they know how to keep their jobs often. And what I'm trying to tell them is that you've, you are a public servant as well. How many of you in marketing for your organization, every hand should go up because you are marketing the organization you're a part of? I, I don't have that culture in the city. And to the first question, I will tell you that the city, the narrative within the city, my mom and dad work for the city. The narrative has changed. I've met with just about every department. And I talk about race and social justice as an example. And I will say, well, how many of you are biracial, Japanese, and black? Like, no hands go up. And I say, well, you guys are so unlucky, number one. But I'll say that when I look at people, um, regardless as to your race, I, I'm going to struggle, but it's going to be easy to find out what we have in common. Every single person, you can hear my voice right now, every single person has some kind of impediment to their self-optimization. Every single one. That's the common human struggle that we're trying to find. How, do we, how can we be the best version of ourselves? And that conversation is a rich conversation. So we're starting that at the city of Seattle. And it's going to permeate throughout the city because I, I know, I tell the story that my roommate at Garfield was a, was a white kid, blonde hair, blue eyes, father's a professor at the University of Washington, mother was a nurse. Have you, any of you heard this story by chance? Good. 
So he's one of my best friends in high school, and you would just think on that rough demographical background, you think, well, this kid's privileged, he's a good-looking, blonde-haired guy, and uh, his father was one, one of the most abusive people that I've ever met. I'd go to his house, and I'd hate going there. He practically lived at our house. He was in our wedding, and my wife knows him quite well, that my mom and dad big black guy, little Japanese woman. You go on there, and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to get a plate of food, whether you wanted it or not. <laughs> my mother literally would wash other people's clothes and stuff in our neighborhoods. My father was, had a great sense of humor. We were very well loved in our house. But my, my friend, man, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I didn't want his hand. And I learned early that the impediments toward his happiness. Now, he eventually became a good father, a college graduate, a good, uh, a good husband, a well-balanced person, but man, he struggled to be happy. Struggled. And, um, and I realized at a young age, at a tender age, that impediments towards someone's happiness doesn't really know a race. Now, that's not saying that I don't believe there's been 400 years of institutional racism against African Americans. That's not saying that I don't recognize the plight of indigenous people. It's not refuting that. But it is also saying that this human experience that we all have sometimes can transcend race. And we're, we're having the same conversation about race in this country that we had in the 1800s and the 1960s. The same conversation. I think it's time we start, we, we elevate this conversation. The same stuff. Black Lives Matter is sort of a, re- a rebranding of black is beautiful, black power. We understand that often in, in black culture, we reaffirm ourselves. There's a need to do that. But it's the same conversation. So in our, our one Seattle principle at the city of Seattle, we're going to change that. We're going to talk about our differences, but that which we have in common. Sorry, I'm, i got to go short on my answers. My, <laughs> as I tell my kids, my bad. I get, I get excited on these conversations because, uh, quite frankly, that's why I became mayor. Uh, if you come to my office, you'll see an article when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, 18 years old. And I said, I'm going to go to college locally. I'd gone to Harvard and Stanford and gone to these fancy schools. And I said, well, I'm going to be mayor of Seattle someday. That was in your newspaper, the, your ex-newspaper, the Seattle Times. So I said, I'm going to try to find the right partner that I found three decades ago and Try to live a life of service. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. So if you think I've lived a perfect life, I've made mistakes. I made a couple today. Give my per- I give myself permission to make mistakes. But if I lead with integrity, I lead with love, I lead with data, it's okay. You're all going to make mistakes too. So I can't remember the freaking, <laughs> the freaking question at this point. About inheriting a mess. Oh, inheriting a mess. So we inherited a mess at the city. But we're going to fix that mess, and you're going to help me fix it as well. Okay, thank you. Um, recently, I was talking to a businessman who has a business on Capitol Hill, and he was clearly frustrated. In his view, it was clear that the small business community supports a greater police presence. And he said, quote, it's difficult to hang on to and hire employees when they're being harassed, maced, threatened, etc." What assurances can you give to prospective and current small business owners that they can continue to do business in Seattle? Yeah, first of all, we have to recognize something. Small businesses, they have to be sort of our last line of defense in an e-commerce world. Uh, 
that our consumers' habits as a country have drastically changed, right? So the brick-and-mortar institutions that hire students, they hire people of color, they hire people sometimes that didn't graduate from Harvard, they are the last line of defense for a great ecosystem, a great city. So number one, we have to do everything possible. What we will do is find out what their needs are. Access to capital is a huge one. Safety. Access to employees. A lot of employees have to work different hours, and so finding that employee that can work certain hours. And so under our Seattle Job Center, it's a new department that we'll create that we're going to make it, um, we're going to, Hey, we're going to institute a no cell phone policy in here yeah. at Seattle University. I'm just joking. I, 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 I embarrass people. I should never do that. I'm, I'm, I should not do that. It's, it's not distracting at all. <laughs> um, that uh, access to capital, uh, safety. Uh, now, I, I, we're going to have what's, what's called many hands approach on several things. Many Hands Arts Initiative is going to be part of our graffiti. Many Hands Public Safety Initiative is going to be a system by which uh, I'll get all the coffee and we'll have you walk around and you'll have a one Seattle shirt and I'm going to have, help people activate their own cities. The fact of the matter is, is government can't solve all these problems alone. We have to stop blaming the government for everything. Because if I need more revenue, guess what I have to do? I have to tax you. No one likes really paying taxes like that. So if I could find an entry point for you to help me with homelessness, for you to help me. Now, I think the money should go to education, and we have to get our fair share of taxes from these large corporations and all of that stuff. But I also need the help of the good people in the city. So on our small business strategy, we're going to have people activate their own communities, make it safe for their employees too. Thank you. Um, it's been reported that uh, recently... Well, not too distant past, that more than 300 police officers have left. And the department has only been able to bring on seven new officers since January, while 34 have moved on. What steps will the city take to stop this loss of officers? So I'm going to make this clear. Number one is we're going to create another department. And that's the third department without a gun and badge. But with respect to traditional officers, and I think that's what the question is designed to solicit, traditional officers... I'm going to make this clear. I don't beg officers to come back. I I, I don't. That we are giving them an opportunity to serve under the vision that I have as mayor. These are good-paying jobs. If you have a calling to protect and serve, then this is a great opportunity. Now, I also don't demoralize officers. That officers literally put their necks on the line. That they are being assassinated in some situations. It's a dangerous job. They have been demoralized as well. So my job are to recruit. And I ask people. I, my uh, security detail has seen me ask people. I said, you know, you might want to consider a, a career in law enforcement. You have that gentle touch, that, that ability to de-escalate a situation. And you also seem like you would be willing to protect people. So we will recruit. These are good-paying jobs. You're well-respected. But I'm not begging anyone to be. No one begged me to, to, to be the mayor. So it's a form of public service. And I do understand their pain as well. I have so many friends that are officers. Um, that's my job, changing the narrative. But remember, trust goes two ways. Officers have to earn the trust as well. You know, So trust is earned. So... If any of you are interested in a new form of law enforcement, 
that I'm very serious that it's, uh, and same, same thing with firefighters. Uh, being a firefighter is a great, great occupation. It's very rewarding. And, you know, a lot of the officers that I'm surrounded with, many of them have college degrees and master's degrees, but they chose to, to feel good about protecting other people. And I know some of you could be thinking, well, what about Officer Chavain, who kneeled on George Floyd's neck? Well, what was his calling? Well, I'm not calling officers like that. This is a new call. And that's my job as mayor. And that's why I said the, the answers in this country are going to be found right here in Seattle. What is your approach to revitalizing downtown? Yes, uh, some employees coming back to their offices, that'll help. But also, um, many, many companies are hearing that employees really learn to love uh, work from home, remote work. And so even if, if you know, many employers in the city are, are sending and calling folks back, it doesn't seem like they'll be there all day long or the whole week. So can you get comfortable um, with downtown being less, having less people than it did before the pandemic? So, Joni, I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is that we have all recognized we can get a lot done through the different tools, whether it's Zoom or Teams or WhatsApp, and there's so many tools out there now, that we can get a lot of work done. And it's cool to do that, and I think that will continue. That will continue on steroids. But I also think the data will show that there are certain industries that really need the synergy. They need the, the interaction, that the ideas are flowing. And you're going to see those, in, those types of companies still thrive as well. And you're also going to see with respect to downtown, however, and I'm going to go through a visioning exercise the next year or two to find out what should our new downtown look like. I said earlier that the brick and mortar, a lot of those brick and mortar institutions are struggling in terms of their margins, even before uh, the COVID pandemic. So art, open space, Music, restaurants, sports, dare I say the Sonics, uh, <clears throat> um, you're going to see that we have to activate these great areas, more residential housing, more affordable housing for people. You know, that's a whole different subject about affordability in Seattle. I get that. I get it quite well. So I think the new downtown will be that. It's going to be in the next several years, you're going to see with the waterfront being what it's going to be, you're going to see a new kind of activation. But the fact of the matter is when I grew up and I was, I got a few, few years on a few of you, that I could walk around a downtown and all these stores are there and I get a root beer float here and you know what I'm talking about and we walk around. Those days are gone. Those days where you know, these small little places are just going to be so, no, so much of an abundance of them. But... I think the new downtown is going to be equally as exciting, if not. Small businesses, yes. New experiences, yes. Music, art, culture, yes. But perhaps more people will continue to work from home. I get that. Uh, do you expect or has there been an increase in homelessness with the cessation of the eviction moratorium that occurred on February 28th? And if so, what policy changes will you deploy to cope with any increase in homelessness? Yeah, the data wouldn't suggest that. The data would not suggest that, um, that because I ended the eviction moratorium, that all of a sudden it increased the, um, it spiked those who were struggling with either housing insecurity or who became homeless. What's most important is that those who are housed, and I say housing insecure and homeless, what's most important is that I continue to do what we're doing. 
And that is finding every available dollar and resource and person on deck that we can. So under our approach, for example, in our regional housing authority, you know, we raised, um, we announced just the, the raising of $10 million a few weeks ago. And even in, while I was about to announce that, I received two more calls from people who were willing to, to raise money. What we're going to do this year is, like I said, when I talk to large companies, I'll talk like Amazon as an example, People don't understand uh, power dynamics. Now, you can look at this old ugly mug of mine and think, well, this cat looks pretty hard. He was a linebacker for the University of Washington. He looked like he could hold his own in a crowd of three. <laughs> so when I walk into these companies, they don't tell me what to do. I tell them what the city needs. I need to make that clear, that when I go to C-level meetings, CEO, CFO, CTO, I tell them, I thank them for their tax revenue, but this is what we need to be a vibrant, diverse city. I need nurses and teachers to be able to live in this city. And this is how, and by the way, I carry a little tin cup because sometimes I'll ask for (laughs) money when I leave as well. So we'll use our tax revenue, our taxing ability, but I also say, you you have, and I've used this term just so you know, I said, you all have a moral obligation when you put out a brick-and-mortar business, a moral obligation. If a person's making $200 million a year, you have a moral obligation to give back to the community that you live in. And I say that unashamedly. So the power dynamics with Mayor Harold is a little different than people may think. Well, he's, he knows big business. Yeah, I know big business. I, I've, I've worked, at, worked for big business. But you have a warrior on your side fighting for that teacher and that nurse and that retired veteran. And so those are the conversations you like uh, when I'm trying to make sure that we rejuvenate the city. You have said that um, reopening the West Seattle Bridge is a top priority of yours. When will it open and how much did the concrete strike uh, now ended uh, set it back? I only set it back a few weeks. And so this summer, uh, I, I don't have my... SDOT experts here, so I'm always leery to say this with the recordings going on. But we <laughs> have we have okay. we have earlier gave a date, and I'm going to stick to that date. So as memory serves, it should be uh, this year. And I will tell you that the concrete strike was. Uh, you know, I was I, I talked to both sides. I talked to them feverishly, both the uh, suppliers and the teamsters. And while the logjam is temporarily lifted so we can get concrete for the West Yellow Bridge, the strike continues or the negotiations continue. So we'll stay, we'll stay involved in that to make sure we come out. Come out. But, but I'm very optimistic this summer that the bridge should be on, on time. We only missed a few weeks. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there's been a difficult uh, relationship in the past administration between the mayor and the city council. What specifically can you do to improve that relationship? What I've been doing, I've been meeting with uh, them as much as possible. I always try to bring them in, give them credit. The fact is they, they ran to solve the same problems I ran, to, the same problems, we're facing the same problems. We may have different approaches often. One thing I, and this is a recent article that I chose, my administration chose not to bond out about $100 million for bridge construction. And I had a council member say that if a bridge collapses on the Herald's administration, it's, it's their fault. 
and I responded by saying, well, it wasn't Durkin's fault or Murray's fault or Nichols' fault. Why, why is it my fault? I've been in this job for 80 days. We made a very, very um, intentional decision not to bond out because the projects aren't ready. It makes no fiscal sense at all to bond out when the project's not ready. And they should have been identified in December for an April bond sale. I mean, we know what we're doing. And that kind of public criticism like that is just not well-placed. I have a louder microphone than most of the council members. I was on the council for 12 years. I thought people listened to me. It pales in comparison to when you're mayor. (laughs) So I show them that I don't, I won't publicly uh, humiliate or blame the council. I will work the relationships. I, council member Morales and I uh, today, who often we have different approaches in how we see problems, we sat next to each other this morning for about an hour and a half with the delegation from France and had a very rich and warm conversation. So for me, relationships matter. Um, I, I don't mean to embarrass my wife here by saying this, I'm sure if I do, I'll hear about it later. But we don't agree on everything. I'm I'm wrong often, I've been told. (laughs) But we still love one another and respect one another. And so sometimes the strength of relationship is based on how you deal with your disagreements. So that's what I tell the council that if we're going to work together, and you all don't care about us fighting. I don't get one up because I'm right and they're wrong or they're right and I'm wrong. You don't care about that. What you care about is this city or meeting your needs and your vision and fighting for climate change and education, race and social justice. You don't give a hoot about who's right or who's wrong and that's what I impress upon them. And they have to understand that. And I think they do because I'm telling them, I'm telling them every chance that I get. What is your position on um, Pike Place Market Street? I read a very provocative op-ed the other day that called for keeping the street open, even though a lot of folks want it closed, you know, pedestrian only. Uh, provocative also because the author, one of the authors of this op-ed was Peter Steinbrook, whose father, uh, Victor, is widely credited with saving the Pike Place Market. So do you think the street should be open or closed? And if so, why? <coughs> Different hours? How do you see that? So somewhere in this audience or backstage is my director of communications, and he monitors everything that I I say and everything that I said when I was running for office. (laughs) And I don't even monitor that closely. So I'll say what I've said, and and this is, first of all, I'm not sure, (laughs) just to be brutally honest with you, that I like the notion of closing the streets and making it pedestrian only. But right when I say that, I met with several owners and restaurant tours at the Pike Place and said, and they call me Bruce, they don't call me Mayor Harold. They say, well, Bruce, that's an awful idea. Let me tell you why. And they talked about how they get their goods and services and that how it will actually cause a huge problem for the small businesses. And so while I do like the notion of it being pedestrian only, which I thought would be really cool, quite candidly, I need to make sure that the needs of the vendors and the small businesses are met. So I'm looking at research to figure out what makes sense. It could be a staggered approach. And so, and I don't even know where Peter, I talked to yesterday uh, through email. So I don't even know where Peter's on the issue. So I'm sifting he's through for, it right he's now. He's for keeping the street open. Keeping the street open. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm navigating through the issue right now. I haven't made up my mind. Okay. Similar um, thought on this. Um, 
Do you have any regrets that Third Avenue is buses only most of the day? Do you think maybe it's a, you know, transit malls are very popular in many, many places, but is transit only the right approach uh, for this particular street in 2022 Seattle? So I'm looking for an SDOT director, Seattle Department of Transportation director. Um, and I will tell you, no, I don't have any regrets right now, that it seemed like the, I was part of the council when we started looking at that. And so what I do have regrets about, or it's not even regrets, what I don't like about Third Avenue is how it's unsafe. It's really and um, you can't take, you can't be around there, and you can't even wait at a certain bus stop. But I'm not convinced that um, I don't want to say in a double negative, not having a transit only is a bad thing. In other words, I, I still think that that make make a lot of sense. But I will tell you, I, I part you 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 elected me for those cool enough to vote for this mayor. You elected me to keep an open mind and not just speak as though he knows or she would even know everything. You look at the data, you talk to the small business, you talk to the transit riders, you see what works. I tell you right now, I reserve my, my right to change my mind on certain things. Okay? I reserve that right. So right now, I'm cool with one way, transit only. We'll make good decisions. That's what, that's what you hired me to do. So we're going to take a quick break. Everybody stay where you are, and we'll be right back. Thank you. Okay, everybody, we're going to start our second segment now. So if you could just sit down, and uh, Camille and Mandela will be asking the questions. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much again for joining us this evening, Mr. Mayor. Um, First off, around the turn of the decade, that sounds weird to say, uh, the Green New Deal was endorsed in the city of Seattle, which aimed to put us on the path towards becoming a pollution-free city, right? Um, But with the onset of the pandemic, there had been concerns that leaders might have become sort of distracted from that goal, and understandably so. So can you just talk a little bit about where we are with that and and whether or not we're still on track? Sure. So uh, thanks, Mandela, for the question. Um, I guess you didn't get the memo here that no one on the stage could have uh, nicer hair than mine on the stage, (laughs) by the way. But um, in all seriousness, the Green New Deal, we described a very aggressive plan with respect to our uh, non-reliance on fossil fuel and our, um, our emission standards, and we haven't lived up to it. And so right now, as we look at our SDOT director, knowing that transportation and buildings are, are the leading causes, that's the criteria, is how do you tell me as the mayor what specifically the policy changes or enforcement mechanisms we'll have to put in place to meet the Green New Deal. Now, in fairness to what the city's done even before I was elected, because they, they are, the city's failure to live up to the goals, the specific emission goals, were I sort of inherited, they were pretty aggressive goals. And I have to admit that it's easy to get credit for the ambition of a goal. That was sort of cool. But... And I'm not going to revisit the goals, because I think the goals are noble goals. But I need to know whether it's emission controls, whether it's our, our building of a renewable energy force and fleet in Seattle. I need to, need to know the, the specific recommendations that we need to, to do as a city to, to con- continue to lead. But we are behind, and I have to acknowledge that. Thank you. Uh, following up on that, hi, Mayor Harrell. Um, so I'm looking at the 
on the street picture when we're talking about uh, climate change. So as extreme heat waves, cold uh, snaps, smoke continue to batter Seattle and increase in intensity, what plans do you have to address uh, citywide climate emergencies? Yeah, extreme cold or extreme heat. First of all, using our utilities, and I think many of you know that uh, you know we are hydroelectric here, so at least we're renewable in that sense. We do buy other forms of power, even nuclear power and some other forms of power. But number one, we will always show the kind of utility, um, either discounts or uh, not enforcing turnoffs. We'll make sure that we have people safe during our most inclement weather. That will be policy-driven. Go ahead. And that includes our, our folks experiencing homelessness as well. Yes. So, let me go back. I think the city's done a pretty decent job of making sure that, particularly during inclement weather, we bring people in. During hot weather, we will do probably a better job at finding cooling places and finding creative ways to make sure people are cooler. This last summer was brutal. And I think that really begs the question is, can we do more? So I actually have a person on our equity staff looking at all of our policies for this kind of weather to make sure when, as we leave spring and we get the hot weather this summer, are we going to have the right, the requisite amount of cooling centers? Will we do everything humanly possible to make sure? And with respect to the homelessness, the homeless population, absolutely making sure that they are uh, they have the ability to cool down. I, I don't want to lose anyone to to the heat, and so we will be we will show a lot of leadership in using all of our available assets. I got to tell you something though. I'm sorry to I'm going to keep my 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 answer shorter. <laughs> Manella's laughing. So I'm I did an inventory of all the parks we have. We have like 485 buildings in our parks portfolio. We have eight swimming pools. We have um, we have four golf courses. We have all of these community centers. All of these assets, rich in assets here. I mean, golf centers and uh, uh, mortgages here in the city. Most cities don't have it like that. And so my question is going to become, how do I use these assets for climate change, for education, for allowing people to stay cool when they want to? So we're going to get very creative in using our asset portfolio. Great. So speaking of creativity, I wanted to switch it up and ask about housing really quick. Um, I understand you are from the Central District, which is very cool. My people are too. Mm -hmm. Um, The area has seen some pretty interesting attempts at easing the housing crisis and gentrification, such as the Africatown Community Land Trust, um, as well as housing that gives priority to to those who can prove a family connection to the district. Um, So I'm wondering, where is preserving the livability and the affordability of the historically black inner city on your priority list? And where do you see those efforts moving in the future? One of my top priorities and even before I was elected, I was doing work in this space. I was the chairman of the board, president of the board for the Central Area Development Association. Um, and uh, I was a lawyer for the Mount Zion Baptist Housing Corporation in addition to First Amy Housing Corporation. So when I say these things, and I always tell people, politician wannabes, they come in here, they're going to fix all this stuff. And I said, what kind of life have you led? And I started the Central City Economic Development Association for Small Black Businesses. That was in the 1980s. So to answer your question directly, I think the uh, Africatown, they have it right. And they're going to be strong partners of mine because they are, 
They are doubling down and figuring out creative ways, particularly for the African-American community, to enjoy the appreciation of growth as well. Still maintaining ownership, making sure small businesses have a place. Um, that's what we have to do. We have to realize that, you know, I don't fault someone if they, my parents bought a house right up the street here for like $5,000, $6,000. That's what you could buy. The, the first house I bought was for $80,000. You only needed like $4,000 down payment. Now, what do you, your generation, you guys would need $150,000 for a down payment. That's not happening, right? So what we want to be able to do is find ways, and I'm working with our lending institutions, by the way, to, to, to ease that burden. But to answer your question directly, you're going to see these creative land trusts that we're doing with Africatown and all these. We're going to double down on those efforts. We need, we need that kind of diversity in the city. We do not want, quite frankly, that kind of monolithic city. It's not the Seattle that I level. When I talk about one Seattle, I'm talking about that kind of diversity that we have to have. So it's a top priority of the Herald administration. Good. Good for another. Okay. Um, that actually leads to one of my questions, and one of my passions is so, the. Oh, oh, can I come back on oh, that one? Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, no, Camille. I just want to say, because some of you, there's going to be some future politicians out there, and what I always tell those future politicians is, do the work now. Get involved now with what you believe in. Don't just all of a sudden. And I hear these people running for office, and they're going to do all these things, and I look in the background, and they haven't done anything even remotely relative to what they're going to say. So another uh, involvement that I had done even before I was in office, but particularly when I was retired, I was the chairman of the board of the Royal Esquire Club. And in the, that social club, its purpose is to give scholarships to kids. But what we said is while people move out of the city, we're still preserving our cultural institutions and our music and our song and our, and our poetry. And so there's so much other stuff in addition to brick and mortar. So the point I want to make, Mandela, is as we continue to fight for brick and mortar, which is a house, I will also fight diligently to make sure the arts, the culture, the spoken word, all of that remains in the city. And so um, I'm passionate about the arts. The arts inspire me. Song inspires me. You, you don't want to see my playlist on my phone. I guarantee you that. I'll have you all dancing in here. So, so in addition to brick and mortar, let's preserve these rich cultures we have in town. I'm sorry. Shorter answer. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That actually gets rid of my... I get excited. That's the kid in me. Yeah. I'm also very passionate about the arts. It's great to hear okay. that that's a, a priority for the administration. Um, one thing that very is, is very close to my heart is a nonprofit and government partnership. Yeah. Uh, those are often disrupted uh, with each election cycle, which causes uh, those in need or even these arts programs to really fall through the cracks. My uh, question is, how do you plan to maintain and build long-term stable relationships uh, with local nonprofits to efficiently and effectively serve Seattle? Yeah, so this, this answer may sting a little bit, not to you personally. Okay. Not to you personally. But there are a lot of nonprofits out there. And some are good and some are so so. And it's not for me to say you're good and you're so so, but it's up to the communities themselves to sort of help me monitor that. Because I have found some very rich work done by a lot, but I've also come across some that just sort of talk the talk the talk. Mm -hmm. So under our administration, I, I, you know, I'm quite frank. I'm from these streets. I know, what, what do the kids say? Game knows game. Is that what they say? 
So I know that sort of knows though, and I, I'm familiar with some that just might be able to talk the talk. And so we're going to, our nonprofit infrastructure on here is incredible. And so I want to make sure that we get those like, like I think Africatown is doing a, a, a phenomenal job. I'll sing their song for a minute. And there's some other great ones. And so I hope to be that discerning mayor that just quite frankly, I know I'm going to take a hit on this one. My comms guy's going to hate to say this, but sometimes I think the city just opens up the checkbook and starts writing checks. I said it. You, you, you heard me say it. And so, so that, that's not a wise approach. I think we do all ourselves a disservice if that, if that happens. That's hypothetical, by the way, when I say that. Just hypothetical. Governments throughout the country just sometimes just write checks. And so I think you need a discerning mayor to really work with these great nonprofits. Great, thank you. Uh, so on schools, uh, just uh, about over a week ago on the 31st, a report revealed decreasing enrollment in Seattle public schools. Uh, it sounds like enrollment, enrollment was almost 2,000 fewer children uh, than expected during this year. So this often can stoke anxiety about budget measures, including, including uh, cutting programs and even closing schools. So how are you prepared to mitigate that budget discrepancy without compromising quality and access to education? Yeah. We're talking about the, the, the school system, the... the Okay, which, yes, sir. Okay. And I think we all understand that, that's, that the city of Seattle's role in the school system is sort of an ancillary partner since it's funded by the states. I just want to make that clear, and I know we have some state representatives here. So I know they're working feverishly on that, that gap. I mean, I don't think a session goes by where they don't devote months to that gap. Now, what we can do as a city, and that's what I want to do. In fact, the superintendent of Seattle Public Schools, Dr. Brent Jones, we got a superstar in that person, I believe, was a Franklin High School graduate, a local person, is I want to make all of our assets, those park assets, I want to make those available to the schools. So if I have counselors, I guarantee you right now, if I ask 10 of you to be a counselor for a high school or middle school student to help them, he or she, navigate through whatever they're going through. A lot of them are going through a lot of issues. They're trying to figure out who they are. Perhaps they're being bullied and they... Their parents are not home. If I ask 10 of you right now to mentor some kids, I guarantee you 10 hands would go up. So I want to make all my assets available for that kind of infrastructure. I want to make sure these kids are fed in the morning through our pre-K work, through our breakfast uh, programs, that they could go to school fed. So we're going to make our assets available, but I'm going to rely on these great states, state legislators to, to address that, that tuition gap, that cost gap teacher underpaid, by the way. I think we all could agree on that. Okay, now we're going to take some questions from the audience, and I'll start with one from a frustrated landlord who says, I have a tenant in my house. He's not paid any rent since November 2019. I've been unable to find out if I'll ever be paid my lost rent or how much and when. So, and the question is, will... Is he going to be reimbursed? Oh, because of the eviction moratorium. Well, number one, uh, that landlord should have been eligible for funds during the eviction moratorium because if, the, if, the, if there was rental assistance for the tenant, it should have gone to the landlord. So we have, to make sh- we have to assume that that landlord did not get any assistance at all. That would have taken care of their reimbursement. So if they were unable to get reimbursed by the tenant and they continue to be uh, unable to get assistance from 
any other organization. But I don't know what that person's plight is. They should contact the city because that's where some of the federal ARPA funds went and a lot of the um, local uh, community development financial institutions were conduits for the money to get to them. So I don't know why that... Is there a department that you would suggest this person contact? <laughs> yes, uh, the Office of... The office of uh, With the city, and they say they'll pay me, but they don't tell me they have a million people ahead of me and they have two million dollars. They just say, you're on the list. Yeah, well, uh, this Office of Housing through uh, the Office of Housing group is who you're going through, sir? Is it the Office of Housing, do you know? I'm not sure what they're So we hired a new Office of Housing about three weeks ago, Micah Winklerchin, a local person, and she knows my, uh, my support for small landlords. And I said this publicly, there's no big secret, that I did believe that small landlords were sort of left out of the discussion during the whole... Um, conversation about rental assistance. So I started a, a small landlord group of advocates so I could understand their plight. Because as I said publicly and privately, a lot of small landlords, they had mortgages, they have insurance, they have repair costs, and this notion that all small landlords are just sitting there counting their dough is a misnomer. So under our administration, we're working with the small landlord community to make sure their voices are, are heard in our policies and I don't know about the wait list, but uh, feel free to contact my office and I'll try to do some follow-up work with you. Thank you. Audience question. Can you comment on how you see the Seattle Promise program expanding? Many high school graduates would flourish at campuses like Seattle U. How can Promise open to nonprofit campuses? Yeah, so earlier I talked about <coughs> power dynamics around these large companies around us. And I talked about a moral obligation. So what you're going to see through tools such as the soda taxes, where we take some of the revenues for the Seattle Promise, you're going to see through our taxing strategies and through our civic and philanthropic work, that school, the, the, the impediments towards school, the number one impediment, money. And why should money be an impediment in one of the richest cities in the country called Seattle? It shouldn't be. And so I'm not afraid to go and raise money for these deserving students. So that's part of our equity, equity and education plan, and that's exactly why I appointed an engineer to, to head up our equity efforts, because I want to measure it, and I want to make sure that I'm raising the sufficient funds to expand the Seattle Promise. And I'll be honest with you. The Seattle Promise was my idea, and the idea had come from my daughter, our, our daughter who was in middle school, and I, I looked at a lot of her friends who just didn't have the resources that our daughter had, and they didn't know what they were going to do, and they had so much potential. So that's how we morphed it into using the soda tax, and I got to tell you that, again, I have to find revenue to help you with the, the costs. Governments never have enough money. Universities never have enough money. But we're a rich city. Let's start behaving like behaving like it. So that's going to be that's you know, that's your directive to me to help our students uh, achieve the uh, to get past these impediments. Another question from the audience: Can you do anything about the graffiti that sprung up everywhere and is desecrating our city? 
So we're starting what's called a Many Hands Arts Initiative, and that's a subcomponent of our graffiti strategy. In fact, I'm going tomorrow to an editorial board to talk specifically about our graffiti strategy. I, I don't... Now, some of you may say, well, Mayor Harold, that's art. And you know what I'll say? A lot of it is not art. <laughs> a lot of it is just people just tagging and uh, ruining property. But there are some struggling artists out there who needs a canvas. So in our multi-pronged approach, we're going to do a few things. Number one is I got to get the state off their... I get the state involved in helping us on their property. Because the freeways and the walls that freeway and a lot of the state right, rights of way is their property. And they put money in the budget this year, not enough, but enough for me to get started. So we're, we're so I literally just identified a person in the city to own that with the state. We're going to at, we're gonna have some, some days of service where I'm gonna ask all of you, I'll buy the paint and the brushes and you meet us place and we're gonna have sort of a we're gonna start working on this strategically. Many hands arts initiative. We're going to identify those graffiti artists who really want to, to paint. And we're going to look at areas, perhaps even on the freeways, where we should paint. And let's have some beautified art structures around this city. Let's do that instead of just gray paint. I don't like the gray paint either. Uh, we're going to get all hands on deck and we're going to have some of these large companies donate employees. I talked to University of Washington's football team as an example because I'm hoping they actually win some games. And I said, hey, um, let's all have some, some time. So you're going to see weekend parties. You're going to have, let's have fun and let's take our city back in terms of artwork. Many Hands Arts Initiative is going to be a multi-pronged graffiti approach. I got to tell you, my wife knows this probably more than anyone. I'm sort of a neat freak. I don't like litter around this street. I don't like graffiti everywhere. Now that I'm mayor, I take it a personal front when I look at a city that looks like it's, uh, just, it's just not living up to its potential. It angers me and it saddens me because we could do better than that. We can do better than that, and we will. So we, we're developing our strategy. I'll actually publish it in a week, and I'm going to ask all of you to help out. Like I said, I'll buy the paints and the brushes. You give me your hearts, and we're going we're gonna to move the mountain. Audience question. What is the plan to address Seattle's exclusionary zoning practices? So let's be clear on <clears throat> what we mean by that first, that the movement toward exclusionary zoning would suggest that large lots, um, that the impediment toward more density, more housing, which would reduce the amounts, reduce the cost of a home and allow more people to live in the Seattle would be to loosen the restrictions on single-family zoning, as an example, when most of the city is is uh, single-family zoning. Now, as we speak, we have 300, 400,000 units of untapped zoning capacity still in this city. I used one example that I could go around the city and point example after example where I will richly embrace density and apartment buildings and transit-oriented de development and certainly loosen up restrictions on single-family zoning such that people could build detached dwelling units or mother-in-law units, loosen the restrictions and the regulatory process by which we can do those things. But I'm still not convinced that in every single neighborhood where I'm concerned about tree canopy, I'm, I'm concerned about parking, 
issues and quality of life. I'm not convinced that every neighborhood you should just plop a 10-story apartment building in every single neighborhood. So I want to work with each neighborhood. We have 84 square miles. And the litmus test is not eliminate single-family zoning because it's racist and exclusionary. I don't think that's a litmus test if you want to achieve diversity. I think the litmus test is you walk around neighborhoods and you have to understand that poor people have a right to live here. Rich people have a right to live here. Everyone in between has a right to live here. And so we, li- we treat our housing stock like everything else. We try to establish some diversity. And quite frankly, I listen to all housing advocates. Uh, I'm trying to work with all of the community to make sure that we have a, what I call a vibrant city. Um, you discussed recruiting for police officers, but how will you position this, quote, opportunity to serve both the youth and youth of color where there's so little trust? Yeah, there is little trust. There's, there's little trust. Actually, the person said no trust. Well, so you know what I started years ago, about 30 years ago? It's called a Youth and Law Forum, and I was a, a lawyer for a church. And what we did was we'd bring police officers there at full uniform, we'd bring kids there, and then we'd do some mock simulations. So if you're 16, you're pulled, pulled over, and what do you do? Well, I tell our kids, first thing you do is turn the lights on and roll down the window, and you don't start mouthing off and say, Hi, officer, how may I help you? We start getting to know one another because, you know what, those officers sometimes are afraid as well. And so what I talk about in building trust is, first of all, i got to get the relationships. It's hard to trust a stranger. So I want, and I tell the officers, and, and my officer friends know this, I says, you got to earn trust. If you, if you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Talking with Strangers, he, he, it's a fascinating read, and he talks about what we project onto a stranger. Well, you don't just give trust away. You, you might have been burned by someone like that. So we're going to go out there and earn trust. And so I tell these officers that. I tell these officers that. It's, it's, it goes to, to, it's a two-way street. So I, I, years ago, I put money in a budget for officers to go down to the play fields, the soccer fields, the baseball fields, the football fields, and say, go down there and throw a baseball with some of these kids. Go down to a lacrosse game or an ultimate frisbee and start mixing it up with them. Start when they're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. Build trust. So, like I said, you, you, you elected a mayor to start this process now. But I openly acknowledge that there's no trust there. The other thing is this. And I took some hits on this. I'll keep taking them. I said that I voluntarily wanted our officers to watch the George Floyd video. Let me ask you by show of hands. How many of you saw the George Floyd video by show of hands? See that? And, and, and I don't care. You may have a different opinion than me, but that was inhumane. Inhumane. And so what I said was that if an officer, if they, if they watch that and they can't say that was inhumane, they have no place on my force. And I want our officers to speak out. That's code of silence. I don't believe in that. You speak out. You want to earn trust, show the community that you believe that was inhumane. And if you can't admit that, you should not take that oath to protect and serve. That's what I believe. So I have to 
wrap this up. Thank you so much, Mayor Harrell, for being here and your patience with all of us this evening. Uh, we'll be back in May with four-star Army General Barry McCaffrey and a program we're calling Putin Con Confronts the Free World. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much. Seattle University's Institute of Public Service presented this event from Piggott Auditorium on April 11th. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.